Lord, thank you for this morning's privilege to come and uh, worship you and uh, reflect on your word. As was told to young Samuel years ago, centuries ago, I pray the same. Speak, O oh Lord, through your word and Give us hearts to listen. Help us to be captivated by your great sacrifice on the cross. May your spirit captivate our hearts to see the glories of Christ even through the shame of the cross. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 27. It's page 1420. In the church Bibles here, there's Bibles in the back. If you are in need of a Bible, please uh, go ahead and take it or indicate to someone they can bring it to you. Page 1420, Matthew 27. We are fast approaching the end of this excellent gospel and today we will look at a very important subject. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage we are going to be studying is Matthew 27 verses 27 to 44. Matthew 27, verses 27 to 44. Verse 27. Now last week we saw Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate has also given the verdict. He needs to be crucified. So that's where we pick up the passion narrative. Verse 27, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place named Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Let's pray once again. Lord, again I come before you as I look at the depth of the riches of this passage and also 
at the same time realizing how can I a sinful wretched person do justice to the depths of the agony you went through on this cross so please help me Holy Spirit to proclaim the sufferings of Christ in a way that lifts him up on high not just on the cross but in our hearts Jesus please be glorified in and through this message and in our lives again in your name I pray Amen the story is told of a man in Dundee, Scotland at the age of 15 he had an accident and broke his neck so he was bedridden for nearly 40 years when someone came to him and asked him how are you able to still maintain your good spirit because he was known to have a very cheerful spirit always encouraging people who came to meet with him while he was on his bed doesn't Satan ever tempt you to doubt God so the man said of course he does regularly he tempts me to turn my back on God he keeps saying if God is so good why does he, why does he keep you here all these years why did he allow this to happen in the first place you ever asked that you know I have we continue to wrestle with that so the guest asked him so what do you do when Satan whispers these things into your ears his response this is what he said I take him to Calvary show him Christ and point to those deep wounds and say you see he does love me and Satan has no answer to that he flees every time you see the cross is where we must go every time whether we are tempted or even when our love for Christ grows cold because that is where we are reminded again and again what the Lord went through for us unworthy sinners. In a way, you know, we can describe the entire life of Jesus Christ as a life of suffering. But the suffering he endured just before the cross and on the cross while he was there to secure a redemption, in a way we can say it's extremely intense. Today we're going to be looking at the first three hours of the cross. Next week we'll pick up from the next three hours where the whole darkness ascended and he would cry that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in order for us to understand Jesus' suffering, we're going to look at Jesus' suffering as a way of introducing ourselves to this passage. We're going to look at Jesus' sufferings breaking it down into three categories. We're going to look at his, the physical aspect of his suffering, the spiritual aspect of his suffering, and the emotional aspect of his suffering. Three ways we're going to look at his sufferings. First of all, the physical suffering. You know, there's a tendency among Bible-believing Christians to not talk too much about Jesus' physical suffering. Maybe two reasons. Reason number one, the Bible itself does not give too much details about his crucifixion. Number two, 
Jesus' physical suffering there was not a unique one because there were others who also went through that torturous process. So maybe we tend to not talk too much about the physical aspect of his suffering. But I think it will help us to take a few minutes to understand the details about the cruel nature of crucifixion, this brutal form of punishment that our Lord was put through. See, death by crucifixion was practiced about six to 700 years before Jesus came into this world. The Persians invented crucifixion. And later, the Greeks practiced it, but the Romans took it to a completely new level. They made sure that crucifixion would be so excruciating to send this clear message. You don't want to go against Rome. This is what happens if you go against Rome. That's why the crucifixion, the person who was crucified would always be outside the city along a highway. So people passing by will be able to get the message very clearly. Let me briefly explain the process of crucifixion. Three items were needed. Two wood beams and three nails. Those are the two items basically. Wood and nails. The wood pieces, the two wood pieces would be put together not like how we see, you know, we see cross this way, but it would actually be like a T sign. One block would have a hole, the other one have a little peg so it will sit on it. There's a cross beam and then there's this vertical beam. So those are the two, two pieces of wood. And then when you talk about uh, nails, it's not about these small little quarter inch or half inch nails. They would be two to three inches in length. Keep that thought in mind. Twelve steps of this physical crucifixion act. Step number one, the victim would first be flogged with a whip. Now Jesus has already been flogged. The whip, as I said last week, it's a short wooden handle, about 12 to 14 uh, inches long. End of it, there's these leather strips about three to, uh, three, or give or take about uh, three inches or so. Sorry, 12 to 14 inches. Uh, and the leather strips would be about three to four inches. But end of it, you would have these nails, pieces of stone, and even pieces of broken bones. So when that flogging would occur, the victim's back would be ripped open. They usually would flag, uh, flog the back. They would tie the person to a post. They would flog the back. So your sides of the ribs, everything would be ripped. Some people would either get paralyzed or even die as a result of that whipping. Step number two. After this whipping, the victim would be forced to carry the cross beam. Not the full cross, the cross beam. Put it on their shoulder, would carry it across the streets of Jerusalem there. Again, publicly people can see it. That's typically what it means to carrying one's cross. And in our Lord's case, the flogging, before that was all the physical abuse too. The punching and the slapping and all that left him so weak that Simon had to be called into duty to carry Jesus' cross. Number three, when the victim goes into the place of crucifixion, the cross beam would then be attached to the vertical one. So they would attach that and they would put the whole piece down on the ground. And step number four, step number four, they would put it down. Number five, then the victim, whoever is going to be crucified, would be stripped of all clothing. 
all clothing. Keep that in mind. And it's at that point, the victim would be given some intoxicating drink. Why? So that they would be numbed, they would not feel the effects. This is not out of compassion. So that when they crucify, the, the victim would not resist so much. But remember, Jesus refused to take the drink because he wanted to be fully conscious to bear the suffering. Number seven, then the victim will then be, after stripped of all clothing, thrown on the cross. Imagine this. This is wood beams. The back is already opened up. He's thrown on that. How excruciating would that be? Sometimes we get a little splinter in our hand. It really hurts, depending on where it goes in. He's put on that. Number eight. He would then be tied with ropes or nailed, depending on how long the soldiers wanted the suffering to last. In Jesus' case, we know it was the nails. And each of those, again, you know, the, the nails that go into the uh, body, they were like about 12 to 14 inches in length because they had to hold the weight. And it's not in the palm here, it would be usually in the wrist here. And then on the feet, they would raise up the feet a little bit and the left would go on top of the right and right where the feet meets the ankle, right there was that other nail. So you got three, two in the hands and third feet. Number nine, the specific crime of the condemned man would be written on a board and attached on top. So what's the crime for which this person is being crucified? In Jesus' case, you know, claimed kingship. Number ten, the soldiers would then lift the cross with the man crucified and they'll drop it into this hole. That itself would be excruciating because they're taking the whole cross they're dropping it down this hole. It would jar the head so much it would make the head feel like exploding. Number 11. And then would become the beginning. Then would start the beginning of unending hours, if not in some cases days, of unimaginable and horrendous pain. Forearms go numb. Shoulders would feel like they're being pulled away from the socket. Chest cavity pulled outward and upward. Even to draw a breath, the victim would have to take the effort to come up. And when you're coming up, your whole body is now resting on the feet. All that to draw one breath. And then your body sags down again. Up and down, up and down. And when this is going on, there will be tremendous pain in the nerves. And with each breath, again, the back is rubbing against the wood. Pain goes deeper and deeper. And when the legs would cramp, the victim would then arch his back for some relief. This constant shifting of position. You know, which angle can I have some relief? some relief and in the meantime there's cries of pain as long as you can have the strength and finally the person would become too exhausted too dehydrated and physically weak to pull in another breath and this last step 12th step death would eventually occur hours or days later and death would 
It's not because of the blood loss, more because of suffocation. So that's a glimpse of the physical suffering that our Lord went through for each and every one of us. Physical aspect. Second one is the spiritual suffering. As awful as the physical suffering was, and it was genuinely dreadful, the spiritual suffering was much harder for the Lord. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus experienced what one theologian says as the physical, psychological pain of bearing the guilt for our sin. The psychological pain of bearing the guilt for our sin. Think about this. Have you experienced in times of deep repentance the feeling of tremendous guilt because you sinned? You know you did something wrong. Then the Holy Spirit is working in you. You feel so bad. You're feeling so guilty. If we as fallen human beings experience guilt for our sin, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who never spoke a sinful word, not a sinful deed, not even a sinful thought. Now he's taking upon himself everything that he is not. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, says Isaiah and Isaiah 53 verse 6. He bore the sin of many, Isaiah 53 12. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin, or better rendered, to be a sin offering for us. 2 Corinthians 5 21, 1 Peter 2 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that's the spiritual suffering as our sin bearer. Habakkuk 1.13 talks about your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He who is opposite of sin is now bearing everything for you and for me. And third, the emotional suffering. By emotional I mean the sense of Abandonment that Jesus experienced on the cross. Everyone abandoned him. We sang earlier. No hand came to interposed. The leaven deserted him. Judas is still feeling the sting of that betrayal. And most of all, Lord willing, as we'll see next time, the greatest abandonment was the Father. It's the father leaving his son those last three hours. You have to bear this. The relationship was not broken. It can never be broken. The fellowship was broken on that cross. Imagine you're going through a tough time in life. Would you rather be alone, abandoned by your spouse, children and even friends or would you rather have someone alongside? One caring voice, one caring text. answer is obvious, isn't it? We want someone. Jesus had no one. No one. And on top of it, all the markings surrounding him. Rubbing salt on the wound, so to speak. When we understand the physical, spiritual, emotional, we get a glimpse of what our Lord 
went through for us. Why did I take time to explain about this? Because of this. Next time when you and I are tempted to sin, tempted to give up, tempted to ask, why is this even worth it? Look back at the cross. So we can say, if this is what he went through for you and for me, how can we not be willing to go through it all? How can we not look at that sin that appeals to us in all its shape and size and multicolored way? How can we not look at it and say, I cannot give in to you because I see the beauty of the cross. That's what will enable us to say no to turn our backs on Jesus either by sinning or by just being cold. Sometimes we think, you're calling me to bear this. I cannot. Look at me, Jesus says. Look at what I've borne for you. Is it too much for me to ask you to bear this thing in the light of what I've borne for you? The old hymn puts it, I've borne, I've borne it all for you. What have you borne for me? I pray that the agonies of the cross will motivate us to hate sin even more and to cultivate a fresh love and commitment for the Savior who gave us all for us. So with that understanding, come to Matthew 27. In verses 27 through 31, we see how the Roman soldiers physically and verbally abused our Lord. Verse 27, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. Praetorium was a large space that was adjacent to where the trial was taking place. And they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him about, the Greek word has the idea of about five to 600 soldiers now surrounding Jesus. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet was the color of kings, so it's like a mockery. And then twisted together a crown of thorns set on his head. As I mentioned earlier, these thorns were about two to three inches long. So that's just crushed on his head. Imagine the pain. Imagine the bleeding. They didn't have to do all this. This is all the mockery that is happening. Next they put a staff in his right hand, like a scepter the king would hold. Again, mockery. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said, mocking his claim of being a king. The mocking continues. They spit on him. Earlier in Matthew 26, we read the Jewish people there, when they passed the verdict, they were spitting. Again, now they're spitting. One of the degrading form of insulting. That's what our Lord is going through. The physical assault continued. They took the staff and stuck him on the head, struck him on the head again and again. It, it's like darkness is having its day. Cannot have enough of afflicting punishment on Jesus. Satan is saying, this is my opportunity. Striking him again, again. Think about this. The mouth he created, the hands he made, treating him with unspeakable, unbearable cruelty and shame. And yet, Jesus took it all in loving silence. That's important. Loving silence. No bitterness against the people. 
Because if he had any bitterness, that would disqualify him from being a perfect substitute for us. He took it all patiently. How often we are so quick with our mouths to hit back. We are a little more civilized. We don't speak it out, but inside the hearts there are a thousand daggers. And then we say, Jesus, you are my Lord. But did you know that these cruel acts by the Roman soldiers were also predicted by Isaiah? This is what their prophet Isaiah says. I offered, talking about the Messiah, he's talking. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. When you are taking assaults from people, go back to Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. Lord, this is what was predicted for you before the foundation of the world. And this is what was fulfilled when I read Matthew 27. You took it all for me in total silence. What stands out is the amazing tolerance and the love that Jesus showed up until this point and he would show even more as the saga continues. He has not yet gone to the cross. Remember that. According to this narrative. He is being prepared for the cross. This is all happening in the praetorium. He is not carrying his beam yet. That's another level. His tolerance keeps going greater and greater. We almost want Jesus to do something to strike these people. Thankfully he didn't. Notice the final thing they did before crucifying him. Verse 31. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, another act that would have caused even more pain. Every time it's rubbing that open back and put his own clothes on him, then they led him away to crucify him. And verses 32 through 44 now describes to us what happened as Jesus was being led to Calvary and what happened there. Look at verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene which it's a city in modern day Libya named Simeon, named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. No other details about Simon is given other than Mark tells us in Mark 15, 21 that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Some think this, these Alexander and Rufus were early disciples of Jesus according to some epistles and we don't know. But someone is there visiting and he is technically when you think about it Simon was the one that carried Jesus' cross. And Jesus tells us, you know, carry my cross. Carry your cross. So here's Simon. Why? Jesus was so weak. The beating he's taken until now left him weak, unable to carry his own cross to a certain point. Verse 33, then they came to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha is a Hebrew word. Uh, that's why Mark, Matthew gives us a translation which means the place of the skull. The Latin word Calvary is the word translated for skull. So that's where we get Calvary. And some say this is like a skull-shaped mountain. It's not certain. But whatever is the case, there was a specific place designated where people would be crucified. So Jesus is taken to that place. There they offer Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Gall is a bitter tasting substance. It was often used in the Bible, refer to what is a secretion from your liver. 
It's a bitter substance. Mark tells us it's wine and myrrh. Meaning, he's specifically telling us the kind of gall. Myrrh is a bitter substance. It's a narcotic. Again, it was not given out of compassion. It was given because he wouldn't resist when being crucified. But Jesus refuses to take that. Why? He still has work to do. Seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. He has to complete all that. So he wants to be fully conscious, fully absorb this. No one would have criticized if he took that narcotic. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. So but the text says, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. This is why. By the way, even this this drink offering was predicted in the Old Testament by David who said in Psalm 69 verse 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Point is, every single aspect of this was predicted. And think about this. Jesus had to anticipate this from eternity past. For this, imagine that that day is coming. That day is coming. Next act is the actual crucifixion. But picture Jesus' condition at this point. Verbally abused. Spat upon. All the insults. Then physically abused. Severe blows to the body. Severe flogging. A thorny crown. Crushed on his head. In this condition. Now. He is going to be crucified. Nails driven into his hands and feet. Raising of the two beams and dropping into that hole, that jar, that, that thudding, and the ongoing suffering of trying to breathe. Matthew does not tell us any of those details except to say, look at verse 35, when they had crucified him. That is why I led us through that journey to help us to see what all involves in the crucifixion, specifically what all were involved in Jesus' suffering. Then the text says, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Remember, the victim would be stripped of all clothing. So Jesus was there. No clothing. Some historians say, the Jews would not prefer that, so they might have left some clothing. I don't subscribe to that, and I'll tell you why. Because John in his gospel, in John chapter 19 Verse 23 explains to us clearly. We'll get to that in a moment. There were five pieces of clothing. Here you find this. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now casting lots was a form of gambling that the Roman soldiers did here. It should not be confused with the Old Testament practice of casting lots to determine God's will. This is gambling here. Five pieces of clothing John tells us, let me read that to you from John 19, 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The undergarment was the fifth piece. And a typical Jewish male would have five pieces of garment. So all the five pieces of clothing was taken away from our Lord, the creator of the universe. Ultimate shame and degradation hanging between heaven and earth for you and me. Even the least dignity was stripped away. That's why this cross is unfathomable. Why this way? That's God's way. 
And even this was predicted in the Old Testament. David again in Psalm 22 verse 18 says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So you see, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the sovereignty of God in every aspect. God controls every event of our lives. Let's never forget that. How could this happen to me is a question we ask. Take a step back from here and say, how could this happen to Jesus? And yet the father says, I willed it. And my son took that cup of suffering because it was my will. Matthew goes on to say what happened next. Look at verse 36 and 37. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there above his head. They placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. As I said, it's common practice to nail the charge on the cross. And that is why Paul would say in Colossians 2 later on, he nailed it to the cross. Our sins, the charge that was against us, was nailed to the cross. All our sins put on that cross. What we owed was paid in full. So we have this physical sign here, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But the spiritual aspect of that, from our perspective, what God's Paul says is, your sin, my sin, nailed on that cross. Our charge nailed. He fully paid the price. That is why God, without compromising his justice, is free to forgive sinners like you and me because Jesus took that charge that we deserve. John tells us in John 19 verses 20 and 21 that the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate's probably fed up with these people by now. This is his way of getting back at them. But even in this, I see God's sovereign hand because that is the truth. You guys may or may not like this king, but he is my king. I have installed my king on Zion. Kiss his feet. Psalm 2. So God said, that is the king. You cannot have the king on the horse if you're not willing to have the king on the cross. We don't like the king on the cross. We love the king on the white horse. He may say, oh no, that's not my thinking. Yes, that is. Why? Because this king, when he calls us to suffer and then enter into glory, we say, remove the suffering. You took it. That's good. I just want the glory. Matthew goes on then to describe what else would happen, but that's for next time. That horrific, horrific cry. How can finite mouth, sinful mouth, do ever justice to verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's for next time. Look at verse 38. Two rebels here were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Again, this is predicted to Isaiah, tells us that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. And then we read about the verbal insults that continue to be poured out on our Lord. The emotional abuse he goes through. Look at 39 through 40. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. 
Remember when Jesus was baptized and he went into the wilderness? What was Satan's temptation? If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. The temptation is, if you are the son of God, use your power to get out of a troubling situation. The mockery continues. In what sense if he came down from the cross they would believe him? They already haven't believed him in any way. They're not going to believe if he comes down from the cross. Once again, God's ways are beyond our understanding. In his sovereign wisdom, he ordained that Jesus would prove he is the son of God, the Messiah who was sent to save us from our sins by staying on the cross, not by running away when things got tough. He endured to the very end, to the point of shedding his blood. Others join in the mockery also. Look at verses 41 through 43. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others. They said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. They understood clearly Jesus' claim. That's why Jesus was on the cross. They're mocking him. People around you and I will mock us. You're trusting in this God. And yet, ever since you started following Jesus, nothing but trouble for you. And people are quick to turn their backs. Yes, this Jesus doesn't work. I signed up for health, wealth, fame, popularity. And all I'm getting here is shame and rejection and pain after pain after pain. That's the taunt here. Trust in God. Where is he? How could he let this happen to you? Why did he break your neck? You're bedridden for 40 years. Even worse, the rebels beside him are also insulting him. In the same way, verse 44, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Yes, one later turned. We know that. Luke tells about it. But he starts out by rejecting Jesus. See, it's one thing, you know, if someone from below the cross taunting you, you're going through the same suffering. Don't you have some compassion for the, a fellow sufferer? No. That's why Jesus is completely abandoned. No one on his side. None. And yet, as the two thieves are insulting him, he's praying for one of the thieves, he's thinking, he's interceding, you know, it's a matter of time. You're going to be united to me. He doesn't know. Maybe some of you here, you're far away from Jesus Christ or you were born in a Christian home but you're just playing the Christian game. You don't really have true faith in Jesus Christ. You don't. But the, but the Lord is, even through this passage, is telling you, I did this for you. By name, He's calling you out. Come. It's not too late. Come. Thankfully, Jesus didn't come down. If he had come, all the entire salvation program would have crashed and we would die without hope. Patiently took it all without retaliating. Again, remember that, without retaliating. How much he endured 
for us. Interestingly, even these actions, this taunting, these specific words were predicted in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 22. I want to read a few verses from Psalm 22. If you're following with me in the church Bibles, it's page 785. Uh, if not, just listen to me. Psalm 22, verses, first I'll read verses 6 through 8. David saying, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me, verse 7, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord, let Yahweh rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, they tear their prey open, their mouths they tear their prey open, their mouths. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm sorry, I just can't get through this passage. It's a tough one. And if you come down, verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. David wrote this sometime 1000 BC. Guess what? In 1000 BC, crucifixion was not even a form of punishment. But yet, what does he say here? They pierce my hands and my feet. This is a messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm talking about the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah. Insult after insult, hurt after hurt, unimaginable. And all this would lead to that excruciating cry. Not my father, my father, but my God, my God. He's experiencing the distancing, crying out. That comes later. One commentator rightly remarked, it was the power of love, not nails that kept him there. Love for the father in fulfilling the task the father gave him to do and love for you and me to redeem us. That's what kept our Lord on the cross till the very end. Love. Love. So we wrap up this portion of scripture for today. An important passage, what Jesus endured just prior to the cross and on that cross for the first three hours. A passage that's beyond our finite understanding. What kind of a response should we have? We thought long and hard. Three responses it's, I can think of. Obviously, you can think of much more. Three responses. Let me give the three and briefly talk about them. Number one, we must love the cross. We must love the cross. Not the physical, but what the cross is pointing to, our Savior. Number two, we must live the cross. Number three, we must proclaim the cross. Love the cross. Live the cross. Proclaim the cross. Number one, we must love the cross. You see, there is no other way to have our sins forgiven other than the way of the cross. If there was any other way, would the father have put his son through so much shame and so much humiliation? No. There is no other way other than the way of the cross. And that's it's also sobers us up because if he put his son through so much and people refuse to accept it, do you think the Father is just going to let them go easily? The same God who is full of love is also full of wrath. You rejected my son on the day of judgment. 
You say, you rejected my son. You didn't want anything to do with the cross. Now you bear it yourself. Problem is, you'll have to bear it for all eternity with no hope of ever attaining that forgiveness that you so desperately need. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on that cross. For it's written, he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus takes our curse by becoming a curse in our place so that he's free to bless all who put their faith in him. That's why we can boast of the cross as the Apostle Paul said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, I have nothing to boast about on my own. My only boast is in Jesus Christ and Him giving His life for me on that cross. And it's through that cross the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. So response number one, in the light of Jesus' crucifixion, we must love the cross. We must cherish it. The story is told of a veteran missionary to India, a man by the name Dr. Eric Frankenberg. Frankenberg served in the South Asian area for about 50 plus years. In his retired years, someone asked him, what was the most difficult problem you faced in all those 50 years. Without hesitation, this was his response. It was when my heart would grow cold before God. When that happened, I knew I was too busy. I also knew it was time to get away. So I would take my Bible and go off to the hills alone. I'd open my Bible to Matthew 27, this very chapter that we're studying. The story of the crucifixion and I would wrap my arms around the cross and then I'd get back You see, only by constantly keeping the cross in front of us can we grow in our love for Jesus and can we continue to follow him in obedience. No wonder George Bernard, the writer of the old and precious hymn, a very famous one, the old rugged cross, wrote these powerful words that we sing even to this day. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. In the light of that, he included this refrain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. I love it, I'll cherish it. Till my trophies at last I lay down. What are my achievements? I lay it all at the cross. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Crown of thorns. He took, he can give us the crown of royalty, eternal life. When we understand and constantly reflect on what the Lord went through on the cross for us, we cannot but love and cherish the cross just as George Bernard did. And love for the cross should logically 
automatically lead us to a second response. We must live the cross. Jesus does not call just for admirers, but for followers. He said in Luke 9.23, whoever, no exceptions, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Taking up the cross calls for a daily denial of sinful desires and following Jesus in every aspect of life, even if that led to death. The cross is not a fashion symbol. When Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up a cross, it was the same as saying, come and bring your electric chair with you. Come, take up the gas chamber and follow me. He did not have this beautiful cross that's on a church building, on a steeple. That's not what he had in mind. It was a one-way trip. No turning back. A call to death. Death to self. Death to sin. Death to pride. Death to lust. Death to ego. Death, death, death to all that I am. The way of the cross is a narrow way. That's why way back in Matthew 7, Jesus said, only few walk the narrow way, the way of the cross. Should you and I genuinely want eternal life? We have genuinely acknowledged I'm a follower of Jesus, then we must live the cross. And that life is a life of rejection, life of not promotion, life of rejection. If God gives us earthly blessings, we again cast it at his feet, but never ever have our identity in those achievements. I boast only in one thing and one thing alone, on the cross. Jesus Christ became a curse for me, took my sin. That's all I have. That's all I am. Love for the cross leads to a living for the cross, which leads to a third and final response, proclaiming the cross. Apostle Paul, talking to the sophisticated people in Corinth, they were saying, you know, Paul, we're in a fancy culture here. You keep talking about this cross, cross, but that's throwing people off. Get with the times. You know what Paul says? Yes, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is and it continues to remain the power of God. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18 Later verse 23, he said, him and the other disciples, their goal was only one thing. Preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ crucified. You see, when we strip the gospel message of the cross, the message is null and void. God's saving power. That is why Paul was suffering in Thessalonica. He was afflicted in Philippi before that. As he approaches Corinth, he's afraid. Genuinely, he's afraid. God comes in a vision, strengthens him. And then Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Didn't mean Paul didn't talk about anything else. He did talk. A brilliant mind. But he says, that's my focus. That's my resolve. Preaching Christ and Him crucified. Because that's the way God has ordained to save people. So we proclaim this message. So when we call, when we call unbelievers to come, we tell them the cost. When you follow Jesus, this is the cost. We don't take out the hard parts. 
It's not up to us to determine what will say, what won't say. God has clearly given to us. Preach the cross. Preach the cross. Proclaim it. Proclaim it. God, in his wisdom, uses the message of the cross to keep on saving lives. We are the means, one of the means, along with prayer, that God uses to bring his elect home. Preach it. Preach it. With the hope that every unbeliever you see in front of you, even those you feel like they'll never repent, years and years have preached the gospel. Think of the thief on the cross. You keep preaching till you die, you keep preaching to that person till he or she dies. Someone has to die for that to stop. Keep preaching it. Keep proclaiming the cross. Keep proclaiming the cross. Talking about deathbed conversion, one person asked a Christian woman, do you think that a deathbed repentance does away with the whole life of sin? She said, no. But Calvary does. It's not our repentance that really saves us. Our repentance grabs hold of Jesus Christ who saves us. It's not our faith that saves per se. Faith grabs hold of this Jesus. Grabs hold of this message of the cross. God's pleased to use that to bring us to himself. So that's the message and we keep on proclaiming. We love the cross. Live it out and keep on proclaiming it. Allow me to conclude once again by quoting a few more words from George Bernard in that excellent hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. To that old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I will share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Yes, all who are faithful to the message of the cross, to the one crucified and risen, will exchange the cross of today for a crown, just as he did. Father, we are so humbled and uh, crushed Lord you caused me to pray at the beginning of the message speak Lord and give us hearts to listen you have spoken you always speak through your word but Lord in me I don't have a desire Lord for this message in terms of applying to me because left to myself I love my sin. I live in sin. And I want to proclaim my sin so others can also join. But because of your Spirit's work, in all our hearts, especially those who are your children, you have called us now. Even though we struggle with sin, even though we keep falling, you've called us, open our eyes to love the cross, to live it as best as fallen but redeemed sinners can live and to proclaim it. But Lord, we know we fail. We fail because we don't rely on your spirit to help us live it out. Would you please give us a heart 
that is moved by love for you because ultimately our obedience has to start with a love for you may this message of the cross produce in us a deep love for you and may that love translate into a desire to live it and a desire and a firm commitment i have resolved to proclaim christ crucified yes it might be foolishness we might be taunted and ridiculed but lord we have you on our side <clears throat> when we proclaim it there is anyone here lord whose heart is still hard unmoved may your spirit work in them and break that hard heart and give them a heart of flesh so that they will love the cross live the cross and proclaim it thank you jesus your name i pray Amen.